Our brains are being rewired by technology. There's no doubt about it. And this virtual context that we are interacting with is affecting the way we think, the choices we make, and who we are. So let's start talking about how this affects our perception. Um, as you can see in the, in the screen, there's no such triangle. Okay? Our brains are modeling reality all the time in real time. Our brains are taking the information that is out there and merging it with information that is already available inside. And they are telling us a most plausible story that is not necessarily true. And I want to demonstrate this with a little experiment here. So let's see how it goes. What do you see here on the screen? All right, there's, there should be a square and a circle inside of it. But what, it, what happens if I stretch that square and I make it into a rectangle? Maybe some of you can already guess where I'm trying to go. Let's draw that now a rectangle with brown edges and a circle. So what do you see? There is no iPhone in the screen, right? Uh, but we have so much familiar information with these devices that some of us are even holding in our hands right now that we can't help but construct that reality. So there's definitely a transformation process. There's definitely a construction between whatever is out there and whatever we end up seeing. And this construction also can affect our self-perception. It can affect how, how we see our own limbs and our own body. So, for example, I can make you think that uh, a rubber hand is your own hand by showing you the rubber hand in a plausible position and then stimulating both of them at the same time. And I can also do this with your whole body in virtual reality. Let's say you are the participant that is right now standing in the middle of the, of the screen. Um, and I'm going to explain how, how this goes. So you have a camera behind you, a couple of meters behind you, and what you're seeing in the virtual reality headset is what the camera is projecting. So you're seeing your back two meters ahead of you, okay? And so far, so good. You're, you're seeing at your own body, but you're still more or less accurate at telling where you're standing in the room. Uh, but if I start poking you with a stick in your back, you will see the back in front of you being poked, and you will feel the poking in your own back. So you will start feeling that that body is your body that is right there. So you're going to be having an out-of-body experience. You're going to be having an out-of-body illusion. And, and this principle is it's very powerful, and it's, it's the basis of a lot of other processes that we're going to see later on. But now let's talk about how this context can influence choices and our behaviors. Let's go to the store. And it, you know, this is, in our daily life, this is very much related to Kahneman's ideas of system one, system two, system one being... Uh, the more emotional uh, processes guiding our choices, and system two being that slower, more effortful, rational processes. Uh, so how many times have you been standing in front of the, of the wine section and trying to choose a wine bottle for, for your dinner night, and, and, and you felt clueless and hopeless and helpless that you have no idea which wine to pick? And... Uh, you know, at some point in my life, I decided just to go with my gut feeling. But it turns out my gut feeling is also influenced by someone else. So to prove this, North and his colleagues, they went to a wine store in England, and it had French wines and German wines. And um, they started playing German music in the background. And when this happened, then German wines were outselling the French wines. And when they started playing French music, the French wines were outselling the German wines. So... 
crazy, right? And, and what this tells us, or what this told me at least, is that we pick up cues from the environment that are affecting our choices in ways that are not accessible to us. We, we don't know it's happening, but it is happening. And you can also trigger these cues in virtual reality in a way that they have an effect after the virtual reality experience. This is very much like the concept of um, violent games making more aggressive children. But you can also make nice games where you're helping others and it can make you more prosocial. So this is how this experiment went. Uh, you had to go in virtual reality and people had to rescue a child. They could fly around a city and, and, and look for a child and rescue him. Um, and there were two groups, two conditions in this experiment. So one group had to go uh, flying by a helicopter. And the other group, they could fly like superheroes. They could be like Superman, stand their arms, fly around and rescue the child. Now what happens after the experience, they remove the headset and the experimenter had some accident. And it turned out the people that were flying like superhero, they helped the experimenter more than those who were flying by helicopter. Um, so, so the whole virtual reality experience changed the notion from I see, therefore I do, to I do, therefore I believe. Or it would be better to say, I see myself doing, therefore I believe about myself. So these people not only help more, but you know, there was some process inside of them making them feel more prosocial and more helpful or a better person. And, and intrinsically, that affected their behavior and, and they helped more the experimenter. And earlier this summer, I heard about a very cool AR app that you can put on some glasses and you would see everyone around you like you're in The Simpsons. So everybody would look yellow and, and with Simpson-like features. And, and, and this really caught my interest. I'm really interested in trying this. I, haven't, I have not, but I'm really interested. But this really got me thinking, what if I would live in a world uh, of Homer Simpson? Would I start behaving like him? Would I start thinking like Homer Simpson? Would this influence in my consumption of beers and donuts? And consumption is, is, is the new idea that I want to bring. Because I'm very excited about uh, the introduction of, of branded content and products by brands in virtual worlds. This can be very powerful in the way we consume products. Because imagine there is a, a game in which the avatar gets more life by drinking Coca-Cola. Uh, would you start associating... Coca-Cola with a longer life expectancy or with being healthier, which is very far from reality. And by the way, this is a supermarket that we created so we can test and change things around and we can test people shopping in a virtual supermarket uh, and connect it to the real world. Now let's go down to what I do. And what I do is neuroscience applied to market research. I'm going to give you a broad idea most of the neuroscience applied to market research nowadays is conducted with facial coding, eye tracking, and EEG. And facial coding is not really neuroscience, if you think about it, because it's just reading the emotions in your face. And neuroscience is about the study of your nervous system. And specifically, I want to talk about EEG. EEG, which the long word is electroencephalogram, is basically some sensors that we place on the scalp of people and it measures tiny electrical activity that is going on in your brain while your neurons are communicating to each other. 
And this sounds very sophisticated, but let me tell you, it's not. Um, we are trying to, to, to record electrical activity from more than 85 billion neurons in a brain. Think of this as a very crowded football stadium. And imagine you want to record all the conversations that are going on. So there's a lot of one-to-one -one conversations, and there's also a lot of big cheering and a lot of people singing the same song. <sighs> okay? Um, and you're trying to record all these conversations by placing nine microphones outside of the stadium. <laughs> so, not that accurate. Um, all you're going to hear is a lot of mumble and, and, and whatever conversation is going to be surrounded by a lot of noise. You know, the most you can find out is which team scored a goal based on which side of the stadium is screaming louder. But still, that allows you to know something that is going on inside from the outside. And with these ideas, the CEO of my company, he, he published recently uh, this article relating frontal brain asymmetry with willingness to pay. Frontal brain asymmetry would be having more electrical activity in one side of your brain as opposed to the other. And willingness to pay was showing products for three seconds, and then you had to rate how much you were willing to pay for that product. And by looking at your brain responses during those three seconds, we could predict how much you liked the product and if you were willing to pay for it. And you can apply this to many other things. You can use it with applications, with products, with websites. Uh, you can also use it, for example, with Tinder. So you can see a profile, and based on your brain responses, you can see if you're going to like the person or not. Um, and you can also use it with virtual reality. So we wanted to know, you know how people feel about these new technologies. Um, and we've done many tested, te tests with um, you know, uh, uh, Google Tango, Oculus Rift, and, and, and many other technologies. And one of them was we teamed up with Facebook because Facebook really wanted to understand uh, how virtual reality, how meeting in virtual reality could facilitate social connection because that's all they care about, right? Um, but there's a video that explains it and, and summarizes a lot of things that I've been talking about, so I hope you enjoy it. Let's watch it. Look around. Could you... They did get into deep conversations, and actually most of them, after meeting in virtual reality, they wanted to meet the person in real life. So this is how the experiment went. We had people meeting in face-to-face, -face, so just in front of each other, meeting in virtual reality, and also people meeting for the first time in a video chat. And let's look at some of the results. 
These are the results for cognitive load. This is another metric from the EEG, and it tells us about the amount of mental activity that is going on at some point. So how much information is your brain processing at some point? Um, and as we can see here, meeting in person and in virtual reality led to equal levels of, of cognitive load. But meeting in a video chat was a little bit more mentally taxing. And this makes total sense, right? When you are, we've all had online conferences, online meetings, and the microphone sometimes is muted, the video is glitchy, uh, there's a lot of problems with the connection, so there's a lot more interaction with these, with these devices that we have to, to use to communicate. Whereas in virtual reality or in real life, you're just sitting down passively, and you, all you have to do is talk to each other. Another finding is related to engagement, and I want you to take engagement here as the level of emotional intensity, so how, how fast my heart is beating. This also, there are, we also extract this from, from the EEG, and we took a personality test after the experiment, and we divided the sample into introverts and extroverts. And it turns out that introverts, they felt more engaged in the virtual reality experience, whereas extroverts preferred meeting face-to-face. And this, this finding, this is very valuable, valuable data because it tells us that um, not everyone is going to react the same way to virtual reality. You know, our predisposition, our personality can, can also modulate how we perceive these kind of technologies. And with that, I want to raise uh, a little ethical concern here. Um, so as we have seen up until now, the people that come to these experiments, they are volunteers. They... they they see what's going to happen, they sign a constant agreement, uh, they do the test, and they go back to their homes. But with the technology available nowadays, it's easy to assume that these devices are going to include biometric and neurometric sensors in them. There's already available VR glasses with, with eye tracking, and we're trying to sync uh, the VR headset with the EEG as well. And this has very, very positive applications. We can use it for early detection of Alzheimer's symptoms, or we can use it to, to understand you know, how you're feeling uh, after a long-term exposure in, in virtual reality. But if this data gets into the wrong hands, it can be very, very dangerous. So imagine you have real-time, constant monitoring of your data, and, and Google or Facebook have access to this data. They can know what is the level of your willingness to pay at any point of time, and they can easily insert some product in the VR experience and make you more excited about it. So there's something not, not just researchers need to be worried about, but also consumers need to, need to be concerned. And we need to read the, the warning labels and make sure that the warning labels include this information. And up until now, I've been talking about the self. And I've been talking about how you embody some avatar and how you feel after about yourself. But virtual reality is very powerful in, in making you take the step, the, the shoes of another person. So you can embody someone else from a different age, or from a different gender, or from a different race, or even a different species. You can become a zebra, and uh, oh my god, I have stripes all of a sudden. And you will see other zebras, and you will feel identified with them, and you will say, oh, like, that's a zebra just like me. And that has very powerful effects. And I want to explain that with this experiment. So these are suspects that are risking going to jail, and by placing the camera in one focus or another, we could influence the, the jury's decision. So when, when the camera is pointing towards a suspect in the, in the left picture, in the left side picture, um, we regard the suspect as more guilty. 
But when we when we use the the interrogator focus and we take this, the side of the of the suspect, then the suspect doesn't look as guilty. So definitely, the way to go is just have to have an equal focus. Uh, but but as I said before, you can embody other other people, and and this generates levels of em empathy that are uh, incredible. It, it, there there has not there hasn't been anything like this before. And, and these levels of empathy, for example, there's already available research saying that when you embody uh, people from a different social group, you reduce your implicit bias. So you sort of become less racist if you, if, if you embody someone from a different race. And, and also another application in the University of Barcelona, they are, they are testing these with perpetrators of, violent, of domestic violence, and they are having virtual reality therapy where they embody women that are being harassed by a bigger partner. And after this experience, this, this is a very stressful experience for, for these perpetrators, for these individuals. And after that, in the testimonials, you can really see how they, they are very touched by this. And they, they say things like, oh my God, I, I've never seen it in, in this way. I thought it was normal. I thought it was not hurting so much, but it really hurts. Uh, or... Um, uh, I've, I've done this, but I've never done. I, I would never do this again. So that is the message I want to bring today: is that this is a very powerful technology, and as you can read here, it, it can be, it can affect our perceptions, and it can affect our choices and our behaviors. But it's importantly, it's reaching levels of empathy that go beyond anything else that we have seen to date, and. You know, it, it's, it's a double-sided knife. You can use it for, for good and to promote for social behaviors, and you can also use it to manipulate everyone into consuming your products. So that's in our hands. Thank you. Now you know.